I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 60 of... Round the Archives. Yes, oh, we're back. We're back. We've been away, but yes. we're back. Well, we haven't actually been away. We just haven't been doing anything. Well, that's not true, because we've been on the Shy Life podcast. Yeah. We've been on Vision on Sound. Yeah. We've been on a Raspberry Mivy and a Footlong Dog. And we've been on Goon Pod, where we, we got to talk about Michael Benteen's potty time. We did, yes. So you better catch up with all of those. Yes. But anyway, let's get on with episode 60, because we're going to have a look at... My Grey. <laughs> Good afternoon, Lisa. Good afternoon, Andrew. Well, you've got a big box of May Grey, haven't you? We have. We have the complete 60 series. Now, one thing I forgot to say in the introduction is that as this is episode 60, mm-hmm. everything we're doing is from the 60s. It is. And May Grey starts in 1960. 1960, yeah. So, so why did we get May Grey then? It looked interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'm always a sucker for play series. Mm-hmm. And... It's actually turned out to be rather unexpected. Unexpectedly odd? Yes. Is that your description? Yes, because you, you look at it and you think, oh, it's going to be something like No Hiding Place, mm-hmm. which is a sort of late 50s, does go into the 60s police procedural. Yeah. But it's nothing like that. There's all sorts of odd stories, and very odd acting. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's it's really Good fun. Well, when you think about sort of police series, early 60s, uh, Dixon or Doc Green is still running. Yes, yeah, so Dixon or Doc Green will be running for a long time, yeah. yeah and we've got Z cars sort of in the wings, haven't yes, we? Yes, about to pop up. And, of course, Sergeant Corp. Mm-hmm. And Sergeant Corp probably goes for the oddest stories out of those other ones. Yeah. But, but does May Grey top them all for um, oddness, do you think? Sometimes... Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's quite simple and it's a, it's a simple story of, of whichever crime. It's mostly murders, to mm. be honest. But there are lots of odd reasons. Yeah, and odd performances and as well. And very odd performances, <laughs> yes. It's very good for weird guest stars, it isn't is. it? It is. Well, L- for lots... guest stars acting weirdly. Yeah, lots, yeah. Of, lots of familiar faces there. Yes. But inevitably you've got the books as well, haven't you? I've, I've, got, I've got one omnibus yeah. book. Yeah. Yes. And this gives you the original story. Yes. Now, the opening episode um, is from Monday, the 31st of October, 1960, Mm -hmm. shown at 8.45. Yes. And it's Murder in Montmartre. Yes. Now, what what did you say this was based 
on? What story was uh, it? It's based on, well, it's, it says novel, but they're, they're very short novels. Apparently, George Simeon could, could knock out a, a story or a book in less than a day. Yeah. Um, so it's based on Murder at Picard's, which is the name of the bar that uh, that he goes to and yeah. the murder I, girl works in. I, I think the more commercial title is the other one, Inspector Maygrave and the Strangled Stripper. <laughs> yeah, that, that's going for sensorised. Sensationalised. Sensationalised, that's the one. Not censorated. Yeah. <laughs> it's not got Peter Glaze in it, though I don't know whether he does pop up. You never know. No, you don't. Um <laughs> But yeah, um, th- this story is the one they always seem to make when they do Maygrave, yes, don't they? Yes, there have been um, three, well, three different series, English version series of Maygrave and one sort of film with yeah. Richard Harris. Um, and in each of the three series, one in the 60s, which is the, the Rupert Davies version, the mm-hmm. version we're talking about, one in the early 90s starring Michael Gambon and one yeah. in the sort of late um sort of 2010s mm-hmm. uh with Rowan Atkinson and each of those series makes this story but comparing the three performances have you seen them all now uh I have seen um yes I've seen Rowan Atkinson but not in that story in a different version of a different Maygrey story and I think out of the three I like Rupert Davis the best he fits the picture of Maygrey but but Simenon is meant to have said I found the perfect Maygrey yes. when he saw Rupert Davies. And yeah. do, do you agree with that? I think so. Is he yeah. like what the description is in he's the books? Just, in the books he's described as a big man. Yeah. And Rupert Davies is a sort of big, tall actor. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, some some of the sort of um familiar faces mm-hmm. um do do have some Z Cars crossover, don't yeah. they? Because yeah. the one we watched the other night had Stratford Johns in it. It this, did. This is the episode, what was it, Maygray and the Cactus? Yes, or the, cactus. the Cactus. And yes. by this point, I thought, well, uh, does Stratford Johns turn into a cactus or something? <laughs> I wouldn't put the put it past it at this point. No, no, but, it doesn't. But, no. but what's the cactus? It's a signalling cactus, it's a isn't it? It doesn't thing. wave its leaves no, about. No, it's a signal to somebody's lover that if the cactus is in the window, her husband's at home, so yeah. don't come. I notice you've bought three cactuses re- recently, Lisa. Should I be worried? No, because they're succulents. They certainly are. Uh, but yeah, saying about lovers and things, there's an awful lot of lovers and mistresses and yes. things going on in, yes. in these it's, stories, it's aren't they? Sort of, in that, that sense, it's stereotypically French, what you think French people get up to. And I'm not even sure that they do, really. Or is it what George Simenon was interested in? Yes, George Simenon apparently did like the ladies. He liked the ladies. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you've got Rupert Davies as Maygrey. Mm-hmm. You've got Ewan Solon. Yes. As Lucas. Now, mm. Ewan Solon, Doctor Who people know from yes. uh, Planet Vivor and The, the Savages. Savages. Yeah. 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 Uh, and Neville Jason. Yes, a very young Neville from Jason. From the Androids of Tara. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And his his missus is Helen Shingler, isn't yes. she? I don't know her so much. She is in Enemy at the Door. All right, okay. She's Peter Portis's mother oh, in that. Right, She's okay. mostly in a wheelchair, getting wheeled from one room to another. <laughs> it's not very exciting, really. But, her. yeah, M- Murder in Montmartre also has uh, Frida Jackson in it. Yes. Um, She's from the first episode of Adam, Adam Lives, isn't she? She is, yeah. yeah. And playing Arlette, the stripper, is mm-hmm. how do you say it? April Ulrich? I yes, I yeah. imagine so. Yeah. yeah. Um and I was watching this for ages thinking I 
I recognise her, but I couldn't work out what she was from. Mm. And I think we did. We have to look it up in the end, or did no, you I clock think, who I she think was? I think we realised that she's in um, Who Done It. She's in Who Done It, Time to Die, the yes. Paul Darrow one, where yeah. he's doing Columbo. Yeah. She's Lady Penelope, the yes. one that gets killed. She gets killed. She's and got she a very d- distinctive voice. She, she's got boggly eyes she as has. well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, mm. again, she gets to use the boggly eyes she in does. this. Yeah. I also noticed that she's in Robert's Robots as well as Desiree, yes. which reminds me we should get on with watching Robert's Robots. We should Robots. watch more Robert's Robots, yeah. But it starts off quite saucily, really, yeah. for a 1960 show. Yeah. I mean, it's okay, it's 8.45, but you've got ladies taking their clothes off. Yeah. We, we well, don't actually see anything, do no. you? It's all shot. No, but it's. I've got an imagination, Lisa. <laughs> yeah, it's all shot. Um, if If there's any of that it's all shot on the on the actress's face yeah so but would you say it's a bit of a convoluted plot because she comes in and wants to report a murder yes she does which which hasn't happened yet or something isn't it Um, it's a little bit convoluted yeah but it's maybe more maybe more over complicated than it needs to be what what i took at home from this um images you get um the, the murderer lives in a cupboard doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he hides in cupboards. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, the one thing I would say is that where in a modern police series you would get more focus on the killer, mm. here he's, he only appears in the last, yeah. not even five minutes of the episode, and he's, he's, he's killed, and that's it. Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't actually get to see him. He's, he's just in the background as this sort of faceless character. <laughs> yeah. But I, I thought the um, sort of Neville Jason stuff was interesting as well. Because yes. Um, yes. it makes it more human. You better explain his sort of involvement right. with well, it. Well, um, basically, he has been not having a relationship, but he, he had gone to the bar and he's sort of fallen in love with yeah. the murdered girl. You better say, say that Neville Jason's like his sort of junior copper, he's, isn't he's, he? He's like the sort of sort of the young... Like PC, PC Sweet or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, or, or, or DC or whatever, because he's a detective, isn't yeah. he? So, yeah, whatever the equivalent in, in France is of that. Yeah, he's a sort of junior one. He gets all the sort of rubbish jobs, probably. So... But yes, he's in love with her, and he's he's very upset when he finds out she's dead. And my guy is surprisingly nice and understanding. You yeah. would you would think he would he was going to be a sort of um, sort of harder, harder. Yeah. Yeah. He's not. He's very sympathetic and very human, mm. even to the criminals. Yeah, you've also got Aubrey Woods yes. um, being sort of is he sort of a drug addict he is, or something? Yeah, such. very young Aubrey Woods. Yeah, and he he gets to wander about on location as well. Doesn't he does. He? Yeah, they had to fly him out to France because a lot of this is shot in Paris, and this is probably the last time you could shoot in Paris and it look like it used to look before it gets sort of more modernised, I think. Do you think they get away with the with the filming? Because there's a lot of the public, or what I assume is the public, but I haven't spotted much gawping. Have you? No, no. I mean, the thing is, I, I do spend quite a lot of these episodes trying to work out what period they're set in. Because hmm. obviously they're set in the present time, so yeah. 1960, but they don't feel like that. They feel like they should be set a bit earlier. But yeah. then... You'd need you wouldn't be able to afford to have the amount of people wandering around. Yeah. Cause, and yeah, I think it's just it is set in the present day, but it sort of feels like it should be sort of ten years or so before that at least. But but this is available in a box set, isn't it? Is it, it a is. network job? It is. Yeah. It is. And it is just amazing that it all survives. Yeah. And it, it yeah. scrubs up fairly well because this is a Blu-ray. 
This is the Blu-ray release, version. I think there was a DVD version as well. So. Yeah. But then, yeah, you, you compare it to lots of other shows around this point and its survival is just a bit of a miracle, really, it is. isn't it? But, it yeah. Is. Um, so, yeah, we've watched, what, about two discs worth? Uh, yeah, we're on to the third disc now. We, yeah. we skipped the first episode on the on the third disc to watch the one with Stratford Johnson, so yeah. we need to go back and watch that one. But we've uh, we've also seen what uh, Unscheduled Departure. That's yeah. the one with um, Peter Copley in, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah, and it, he's a bit. Is he a bit bonkers in that uh, as well? Everybody seems to be a little bit odd and a bit bonkers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Hugh Burden turns up in The Burglar's Wife mm-hmm. and then you've got Peter Stevens in The Revolver oh gosh yes and what's he doing he's uh, raving isn't yeah, he yeah he's, he's raving and wailing and screaming it's most extraordinary performance yeah I mean Peter Stevens for anybody that's seen the, the episodes that exist from, from two sort of uh, mid 60s episodes will know Peter Stevens for being um, the Billy Bunter-esque schoolboy yeah. Cyril in uh, the Celestial Toy Maker and the uh, one of the priests in um, The Underwater Menace. Yeah. But yeah, he's, he's away with, well, I don't know what he's doing, but yeah. it is very funny. Yes. But yeah, the revolver is the one where May Gray has to go to England, doesn't he? He does. And is it true that he sort of turns up the Frenchness a bit? A little bit, yes. Yes, because it's a bit like um, Van der Volk in a way, where names and titles have the French accent or the French intonation mm. on them apart from that they're all speaking in sort of English accents until yeah. he goes to England at which point he has to rev up the Frenchness just a little bit <laughs> and he's a bit more French yeah in that episode there's the episode of Man of Quality and I was watching an actor thinking who's that who is you know he looks a bit like Wilfred Bramble doesn't he yeah and then I realised it was Wilfred Bramble with his best teeth in. Yes, because he was, he was quite unrecognisable. <laughs> he was really. He but was doing a bit of a accent. Doing a bit, doing a bit of a voice. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, you've also got a uh, Professor Quatermass. Yes. Turning up, haven't you? Yes, John Robinson. You've got John Robinson. Mm-hmm. Um, and who was who was the uh, the Claxon? Oh. In the episode following it. Gordon Gostolo. Gordon Gostolo yeah. giving... A really understated performance. Yeah. Yeah. Weird, that. Yeah. Sorry. Don't get don't get, get to see that often. Well, mostly you? you just get to see Gordon Gostolo being Gordon Gostolo. Yeah. Really. So. But, some of, yeah, some of the other guests actually out, out, sort of outdo him for yeah. once, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> but what do you think of it so far? I'm, enjoy- I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of totally not what I expected. No. And, but I, I like it. It's, I like the performance that Rupert Davis is giving. Mm-hmm. I like all the supporting characters. And I like the character yeah. because he is he is very human. Yeah, I mean, we we did talk about May Gray um, as part of a sort of longer chat about detectives on on Martin Show Vision on Sound. We, uh, we should mention that. Mm-hmm. Go and have a listen to that as yes. well. Yeah. Um, but how, how, how much more have we got to do? Quite a bit. Quite a bit, yeah. yeah There's but... 52 episodes altogether, so yeah. I think, and I think we've done about 9 or 10. Yeah, so, we're, so... we've scratched the surface, yes. but we, we can, we can take, take a deep, deeper dive as we, mm-hmm. as we go on. But yeah, recommended though? Yes, definitely. Yeah, get, yeah. get, get yourself it if you can. If you if you like that sort of thing, yeah. Um, would you say DVD or Blu-ray or whatever's available um, now? Um, I would say, well, not everybody has a Blu-ray player yet, so get whichever version you think is best for you. Yeah. 
it looks good on Blu-ray. Yeah. Um, you get a nice shot of BBC TV Centre at the end in the end credits, yeah. don't you? You'll get that anyway. So, but yeah, um, if you can afford to get the Blu-ray, get the Blu-ray. Yeah. All right. So. Well, there you go. Get yourself a bit of Maygrey then, and then put your cactus in the window if you have to. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye. Bye. Thank you for helping with that, Lisa. That's okay. Thank you. Right, staying with the 60s, as -hmm. we indicated. Now Martin takes a look at... The Avengers. A little over 60 years ago, and barely a month after the series which inspired it was cancelled, partly in a fit of litigious peak, a television series began that would in many ways come to encapsulate a particular view of 1960s Britain that never really went away. It was so popular in certain countries, especially France and America, and who'd have thought that those two countries could ever agree about anything other than how bad the UK is, that this particular image of Britain and the British seems to have stuck in their minds and shaped their perception of us ever since. Well, perhaps the later variants of the show have. The earlier, far grittier incarnation, a lot of which was lost to that scourge of archive television fans everywhere, the videotape wiping policy of the 1960s and 1970s, is all but forgotten these days. Well, perhaps with the exception of a few die-hard fans and people who like or know a thing or two about archive television. The first series, consisting of 26 episodes, is mostly lost, and only three and one-third episodes of it remain, and even the survival of that is mostly due to luck rather than judgement. Happily, it is only that first year that is so afflicted, and the entire run of the rest of the series survives, most of it on film, and the final two series in a glorious version of colour television that truly displays the swinging 60s in all of its glory. This series was, of course, the Avengers, a 50-minute black-and-white crime and spy-themed drama series shot on 405-line videotape made by ABC Television for ITV. Well, I say drama because it is a scripted and indeed acted series, but it does have its tongue firmly planted in its cheek and approaches its stories with style, panache, flair and a little bit of the old twinkle in the eye and doesn't take itself all that seriously. Or at least that's where the series is ultimately headed. A lot of the appeal of those later seasons is their level of, dare I say it, what can only be described as campness. But the strange thing about the Avengers is that it was not always that way and the transformation happened within a short enough time frame to make you imagine that viewers brought up on the earlier series might very well have wondered what had happened to their gritty little spy drama to make it change quite so much from its roots. But as our consideration today is of all things 60, it is to that very first season that I'm going to concentrate on. Shot mostly live, the inverted commas are on the surviving caption cards, in multi-camera studios with filmed inserts, often it seems shot in the streets immediately surrounding the television studios, possibly so that they wouldn't have to unplug the cameras if the wires were long enough. 
The three surviving episodes from that very first series are, in order of original transmission, Girl on the Trapeze, The Frighteners, and the most recent find, Tunnel of Fear, all of which have been made available for home viewing, although one wasn't found in time to make it onto the rather smashing Series 1 and 2 box set release. Thanks to an archival fluke, the very first act of the very first episode, Hot Snow, also survives, found buried in an American archive for no discernible reason other than it was possibly from an ABC television overseas sales showreel. The interesting or tragic, if you happen to be the sort of person interested in the process of character development generally, fact is, however, that strangely enough, given quite how identified with the series the other main star became, not a great deal of the surviving footage features John Steed, the mysterious, shadowy and not altogether trustworthy man from the Ministry who gets Dr Keel involved in several of his dark schemes, played with a seemingly effortless charm by Patrick McNee. One of the surviving episodes, Girl on the Trapeze, does not feature Steed at all, and he doesn't appear in that first act of Hot Snow either, leaving just the Frighteners and Tunnel of Fear for us to see him in action alongside Dr. Keel before the series is rejigged to make his character the central figure in the second series, initially alongside Dr. Martin King, in already written scripts in which one name is seemingly substituted by the other, as played by John Rollison, then alongside Julie Stevens as Venus Smith and her musical interludes, before settling upon the iconic leather-clad tour de force known as Mrs. Catherine Gale, as played by Honor Blackman. The running order of that series moves around a bit, so you could never quite know who the sidekick of the week is going to be, but once Mrs. Gale turned up, it really was no contest, and the series settled into having one regular male and one regular female lead throughout the rest of the 1960s, only adding another action man in the form of Gareth Hunt as Mike Gambit, when he appeared alongside Joanna Lumley as Purdy when the new Avengers roared into the schedules in the mid-1970s. McNee is an odd figure. Often his acting style, or lack of it, comes in for some criticism in several quarters, but actually he is utterly perfect in the part of John Steed, and makes it look so natural that it's quite easy to underestimate quite how hard it is to pull that sort of thing off. Like Roger Moore in The Saint, people say that he's just playing himself, and yet with both Simon Templer and John Steed, we notice that the several attempts to revive the shows featuring them have often fallen down because the actors playing those parts have not quite been able to summon this supposedly simple appeal. Even the new Avengers stuck, as it sometimes seems, between the light fantasy of the 60s series and the gritty realism of the shows around it, and those which follow, relies heavily on this character being at the very heart of it, even if the actor himself often felt sidelined throughout those troubled couple of years it was in production. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves. The series that preceded The Avengers, and with which it shared a lot of its DNA, only ran for 13 half-hour episodes, all of which were made by ABC, and this show was called Police Surgeon, not to be confused with the 1970s American show of the same name, starring Sam Groom. The short-lived British series, which was created by emigrant Canadian TV supremo Sidney Newman, who is, of course, a name to be reckoned with in the creation of the iconic TV series of the 1960s, and mostly produced by Leonard White, revolved around the character of Dr Geoffrey Brent, who was, unsurprisingly, a police surgeon who worked for the Metropolitan Police, usually represented in the form of Inspector London, as played by John Warwick. Only one episode, the first, is currently known to exist of Police Surgeon, but because it is often mistakenly thought of as an actual prequel to The Avengers proper, rather than being its creative cousin, the episode is included in that box set as an extra. The episode is entitled Easy Money, and a young tearaway, Jim Clark, played by an almost ridiculously young-seeming Michael Crawford, who must have been around 18 at the time, manages to blag his way out of a charge of theft at the local Nick, where Dr Geoffrey Brent, played rather sincerely by Ian Hendry, is also a familiar figure. 
There's a fair amount of sub-Dixon of Doc Green-style shenanigans at the local police station, some of it involving ineptitude, clumsiness, pool's winds, and familiar exasperations about female police officers that would continue to trouble similar dramas for several decades yet, before Dr Brent intercepts the young tearaway in a nearby local cafe and through a very strongly written and performed two-handed scene that reminds the viewer of exactly the kind of kitchen sink dramas that were playing so well at the time, attempts, however futilely, to try and put this young lad back on the straight and narrow. And he almost succeeds too, and probably would have done if it wasn't for... well, never mind. It's not exactly the actions of a diabolical mastermind that are being combated here, but Great Oaks and all that. In the cafe setting there are some tense moments which lead to some studio choreographed conflict involving a group of three teddy boys, as the credits put it, which couldn't help but make me think that this played in some way very much like a scene from a very, very early episode of Last of the Summer Wine, made when Blameyer, Compo and Clegg were young hooligans, but that's just a flight of fancy on my part. But the key thing, I think, for you to take from that episode is just how very, very good indeed Ian Hendry is in it. All around him there are some acting performances that can only be described as less than stellar, but right at the heart of it, there he is, rock solid, dependable, and giving it his quite stunningly brilliant all, and an absolute future superstar in the making. You can immediately see why, when it came to the Avengers, he was kept on, although I think it's probably fairer to say that ABC were more than eager to build another show around him for him to star in. Ingrid Hafner, who played Amanda Gibbs in one episode of Police Surgeon, obviously caught an eye or two, and would also be retained for the new series to play nurse and receptionist Carol Wilson, a character who worked at the doctor's surgery run by Dr Treading, Keel's rarely seen or discussed partner in general practice, who was played by a pipe-smoking Philip Stone in the first couple of episodes before vanishing and never being seen again. The series, which was dubbed The Avengers by Sidney Newman, although it is claimed that he didn't really know what it meant but that he just thought it was a good title, would continue for six seasons throughout the 60s, go through numerous changes in style and characters and clock up 161 episodes before bowing out in May 1969. So, one month after saying goodbye to Ian Hendry as Dr Geoffrey Brent, on the 7th of January 1961, viewers were introduced to Ian Hendry playing Dr David Keel, a GP working in Treading's medical practice, who, following a personal tragedy, gets roped into exciting adventures involving crime-fighting and espionage, often but not exclusively thanks to those interventions I mentioned earlier from co-star John Steed. In Hot Snow... The opening episode, written by Ray Rigby and based upon a story by Patrick Brown, we are, albeit briefly, introduced to Keel's fiancée Peggy, as played by Catherine, spelt with a C here, but more usually spelt with a K, Woodville, an actress who would later be married to Patrick McNee for several years, and who also appeared in an episode of the original series of Star Trek, For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. Very shortly after we meet the briefly happy couple, due to a mix-up with the delivery of a consignment of heroin to a different and far dodgier Dr. Treading, Peggy is horribly murdered outside a jeweller's shop as the happy couple pick out an engagement ring by Godfrey Quigley playing Spicer, the wall-climbing, surgery-intruding, rifle-toting, and by some margin gruffest member of a rather peculiar gang of Kenneth Williams-channeling drug smugglers. And after this horrible development in his life, Dr. Keel vows to avenge her death by bringing these low lives to justice. Again, it's hardly the diabolical masterminds of later seasons, but it does serve to give some meaning to that Avengers title, which hardly ever comes up again. And despite the strangely camp villains we see, this comes across as being quite a seedy tale of drug addicts, murder, double-dealing and deception, at the climax of which Spicer does eventually meet his own grisly fate, and after which Dr. Keel is advised by a police officer to leave the crime-fighting to the police, although, as he points out, the work isn't finished yet, and consequently the entire basis for a series is born. 
In his quest for justice, he has been aided, of course, by a shady and mysterious figure who seems to be working for the government in some vague capacity. Guess who? And in the second episode, brought to book the second half of that most rare of things, a sort of two-part episode of the Avengers, they do indeed manage to avenge Peggy's death even more fully by bringing down the head of the gang, and a lasting crime-fighting bond is formed between the two leads that lasts for, well, at least that one year of production. And it really is very nearly a year. Sometimes new episodes appear fortnightly, and the 26-part run, starting in January, remember, does not conclude until very late in December that same year. No wonder they felt shattered at the end of it. After subsequent episodes involving forgers, a fake MI5 agent, and a political kidnapping, the earliest complete episode that still exists is the sixth, first broadcast on the 11th of February 1961 and called Girl on the Trapeze. It was written by Dennis Spooner and is an episode which features our old favourite and rather ubiquitous actor Edwin Richfield, another television guest perennial Ivor Salter, with Howard Gorney playing Superintendent Lewis, who apparently has a streaming cold for medical reasons for Dr Keel to get involved in the plot fans, and future Avengers perennial Kenneth J. Warren playing Zibbo, alongside, because of the studio lights, a particularly sweaty and, for this week at least, solo Dr Keel in an adventure full of intrigue involving the suspicious death of a girl who worked at a touring Russian circus after he involves himself after witnessing her apparent suicide by jumping in the river. In this episode, which features a larger-than-usual piece of the action for Carol, damsels in distress are rescued and big circusy fights are fought in an episode that really seems to enjoy using the trappings of its circus setting and also uses Dr Keel's medical skills very much in order to further the plot, which I'm sure happened quite a lot, but it's obviously difficult to be absolutely certain. Further escapades follow in which our heroes battle diamond smugglers, missing isotopes, arson, the missing proceeds of a huge robbery, the theft of top-secret files, domestic murder, microdots and networks helping prisoners to escape, until we come to the episode which was, for many years, all that survived from that first series. This was the episode broadcast in the 15th slot on the 27th of May and called The Frighteners, an episode written by Barclay Mather, which is all about the taking down of a gang run by a sinister figure known as The Deacon, played by Willoughby Goddard, later to play our favourite heavyweight in the mind of Mr J.G. Reader, who are hired to put The Frighteners on certain characters who are considered unsavoury or inconvenient enough to their enemies to require sorting out by these violent third parties so as not to filthy their own lily-white hands with the whole messy business. In this episode, they are hired by another favourite in the heftiness department, one Stratford Johns, who is using some frankly terrible parenting skills to scare off a feckless workshy fop from troubling his daughter. Actually, he's a conning workshy fop amongst other workshy fops in the person of an on-screen appearance for Philip Gilbert as Jeremy de Willoughby, later the voice of Tim in The Tomorrow People. In this episode, Philip Locke is threatened that he'll drop dead from a broken neck he doesn't have, and he and the Deacon are threatened with the old fake deadly hypodermic needle trick first practised by Dr Keel in episode 2, with Dr Keel's medical knowledge helping to add a much-needed human element to this underworld drama in which Steed's blend of being both charmer and torturer can be seen in equal measure, and we get a glimpse of the more dapper figure he would later become, especially in the flower cellar sequence. Justice over some double-dealing duplicity is ultimately served in all strands, and the episode concludes with a rather surprising twist, if you're not expecting it anyway, thanks to one of Dr Keel's actress friends. There's even the use of a taxi as an HQ which would later serve David Callan well, when he briefly becomes head of the section. And we also get a glimpse of future Sam Seeley, Neil Wilson, as an Italian deli owner who's handy with a meat slicer, but his stereotypical performance is offset by glimpses of an actual ethnic minority and a police constable, both very rare in Avengers Land, in the early part of the episode. 
When I was collecting the videotapes of old Avengers episodes a decade or more ago, during a time that involved my brief period of interaction with the whole messy business of bidding on eBay for them, a copy of The Frighteners from what was known as the Evolution Collection became something of a holy grail for me, even though I ended up with a couple of copies of it as I tried to piece together the entire second series across several disparate releases. The series continues, with more international concerns which next trouble our avenging heroes as a coup is attempted in an African state, before submarine espionage troubles them closer to home, followed by another diamond robbery and a call girl racket drawing their attention, all of which I mentioned to show the diverse nature of the threats with which our heroes were dealing. The interesting thing about Studio Canal, the company that currently appears to hold all the rights of the Avengers, is that they do seem rather reluctant to allow much in the way of original fiction based around the characters and concepts and are very, very protective of their product, as indeed they should be. However, what this means is that when Big Finish got the licence to produce the Avengers in audio form around a decade ago, all that they were allowed to do was recreate the stories, both missing and otherwise, from that first series. And it was the chance to finally hear that series in some form, and in as near as it seemed it might ever get to its entirety, that actually brought this customer back into the worlds of Big Finish after more than half a decade away. Anyway, what this means is that over the course of seven rather enjoyable box sets, the entire 26 episodes of that first series were recreated starring Anthony Howell and Julian Wadham in the main roles. They've since gone on to adapt stories which appeared in several other media like comic strips and original fiction at the time of the original series, but original new stories still seem to be off the table no matter how much the Big Finish writers are having to push the envelope in order to recreate the legitimate lost ones. This is because for a great many of the episodes from that first series surprisingly little remains other than the episode titles, broadcast dates and much of this information can only be gleaned from the listings from old copies of the TV Times or from the newspapers of the time. Many of the scripts are lost completely and several have only the sketchiest synopses, so building entire episodes from such fragments must be a tricky thing to do, especially when working with a licensee as protective of their product as Studio Canal appears to be. Even Dave Rogers, the author responsible for many of the publications that told the story of the Avengers to eager young fans back in the day, seems to get a little sketchy in his episode descriptions for several of these episodes in some of his books. However, what all this means is that the next and most recently rediscovered episode, The Tunnel of Fear, written by John Cruise and first seen on the 5th of August 1961 was actually recreated by Big Finish before it was found and became available to be viewed and so the differences between the plotting choices between the two versions are quite fascinating should you choose to compare and contrast. The original episode is largely set behind the scenes at a fairground in South End. The episode opens with an escaped prisoner with the surprisingly dull name, in Avengers terms, of Harry Black, played by Murray Hayne, turning up at the surgery in need of attention and, between bouts of enforced unconsciousness, he claims that he was framed. As the story unfolds, we briefly get to meet Steed's boss 110 a couple of times, as played by Douglas Muir. This is the only surviving chance we get from the first season to see him in action. Meanwhile, much like the episode set behind the scenes at the circus, the episode itself makes the most of the elements of its fairground setting, including dancing girls, hypnotism and ghost trains, and you genuinely start to get a slight sense of the more eccentric theme of the weak worlds that would become such a feature of the later series of the show. But we're not there just yet. This is a far more down-to-earth and at least vaguely realistic portrayal of the dark corners of the underworld that Dr. Keel and Steed inhabit, with, despite the villain in significantly the bowler hat, genuinely creepy characters and sinister villains being convincingly unpleasant and setting up innocent people to take the fall for crimes that they didn't commit. 
Steed also gets to enjoy himself a lot amongst a plethora of bikini-clad fairground girls whilst wearing a turban and working undercover as a fairground stallholder, which has to be seen to be believed, really. We also get to meet Harry's mum, one of those lovely dotty eccentrics as played by Doris Rogers, which is another of those delightful cameos that later series would place very much front and centre of the series. It's also got Morris Perry in it and displays a fair amount of the exposed jiggling flesh of young women as the plot unfolds, which probably titillated the viewers quite considerably on that Saturday evening all those years ago. The Tunnel of Fear is, of course, the ghost train, where most of the criminal plotting, hypnotism being used to make otherwise innocent people commit break-ins, is being hatched, using a cutting-edge, high-tech computer that needs to be seen to be believed, and a bluff with an explosive cigarette. Although alongside all of these spy shenanigans, there's some quite poignant family moments along the way that manage to drive a surprisingly touching subplot which remind us that, at the very heart of early Avengers, there are several social issues being addressed. Six more adventures follow for Dr. Keel and John Steed, including heading off to, presumably, a studio-bound depiction of Mexico, which very likely might prove troubling to modern viewers if it had survived. Combating fraud amongst emergency rations intended for victims of a cyclone, political assassinations, the rebirth of fascism in 1960s London, stolen experimental vaccines, seriously ill banana salesmen, and research into radiation, many of which still sound more than a little topical 60 years later before their partnership comes to a disappointingly premature end, because, from what there is available to see, their adventures were actually well-written, well-performed, well-made and rather a lot of fun for what was basically a studio-bound adventure series recorded at least as live around 60 years ago. Back in the day, production of that first television season was interrupted and ultimately somewhat reduced by a television strike which gave Ian Hendry the opportunity to escape from both his contract and the series itself and pursue a film career, a career path incidentally imitated decades later, perhaps with far less grace and far more ill-feeling, by David Caruso on NYPD Blue. Ian Hendry's film career included several undoubted classics like The Hill and Get Carter, so you can hardly blame him for trying to capitalise on his good looks and lead actor status in an era where such things would later serve people like Sean Connery, Michael Caine and, albeit far later on, Roger Moore very well, although with the direction the British film industry was ultimately headed for not yet clearly signposted, you can't help but wonder whether it was the best career path for him to have chosen. After all, in the 60s, Patrick McGoohan, Roger Moore, of course, and even Patrick McNee did very well out of remaining in television and could even be considered to be huge television stars, despite only one of them probably making it to genuine film star status. That said, Ian Hendry was always popping up regularly as a guest star in several of the usual film series made for television in the 1960s and 70s, like Danger Man, The Saint, The Persuaders, and later series like Van der Valk and Bergerac. But departing The Avengers just before it transformed into a phenomenon might very well have been one of those things that kept him up late at night for the rest of his life. A decade and a half later, after a career that somehow never quite managed to soar quite so high again, albeit one which included several lead roles in high-profile drama series like The Lotus Eaters and For Maddie With Love, Ian Hendry would return to Avengers Land in a slightly nostalgic and melancholy episode of the new Avengers entitled To Catch a Rat. He did not reprise Dr. Keel, but there was an oblique acknowledgement to him in Steed's parting line to his character. It may be 17 years late, but welcome back, Gunnar. Ian Hendry died at the age of 53 on Christmas Eve 1984, a mere 23 years after that memorable series in which he starred ended. But we remain eternally grateful that he was there right at the beginning, more than 60 years ago, to introduce us all to the phenomenon that was, and is, The Avengers.
Many thanks to Martin for that article. Indeed, Martin's show, Vision on Sound, is available every Sunday from Fab Radio International at 7 o'clock. And there's a podcast version available soon after on Anchor FM. Indeed. Talking about the Avengers, uh, Simon and Ken from the Exxon Moss Experiment have a new show where they're working their way through the Avengers, mm-hmm. Kinky Boots, <laughs> and that's on SoundCloud. Right. But now, Paul and Toppy find that they're... Lost in space. You ought to be ashamed of yourself playing your tape recorder at a time like this. Music always helps me when I'm sad. I'd like you all to hear something. We are rationing our power, my dear. You're needlessly wasting a perfectly good battery. You'll find this very interesting. This is the robot speaking. I have a message for my friends. Dear ones, I realize the problem which faces you. I understand the brave fight you have made to survive on this planet. Rather than place you in further danger, I have made the decision. Around the archives, people. It's me, Paul the Shayetti. How you doing? I'm all right. Uh, I've got Toppy Smelly here today. How, how are you doing, Toppy? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's good to have you back. Now, uh, this time, um, because this uh, edition of Around the Archives is 60s themed, we're, we're going to talk about a show that uh, we both like, but I, I know you're, you're particularly fond of it, uh, Lost in Space, the 60s Yay. version. Yeah, 60s version. Let's do it. Yeah, it ran from 1965 to 1968, three seasons. And there, there were uh, 83 episodes, 29 in black and white, and 54 in colour. And um, now I, I don't tell me if I'm being rude, but I just wondered would you have been old enough to have seen it? You know, by the end, like season three, would you have been old enough for season three? Yes, I would have. And I. I have. I, I think I was tuning into it. Um, I was certainly tuning into the show that was competing with it, which was uh, Batman. And uh, I would have been around three or four. But um, I do remember watching Batman, and I remember watching uh, Lost in Space. So that would have been when it was actually airing. Mm. But what I really remember, much more than that, uh, were uh, <clears throat> was when Lost in Space went into syndication and uh, perhaps a station would play it every afternoon at uh, 4 o'clock. And that's when I really saw them over and over and over again. Mm. Um, so it was when it was in syndication that those are... that's. That's where most of my memories and nostalgia for the show uh, are from. But, uh, jumping to the end of it here, but only only because um, uh, I read something today which um, I didn't know. Well, well, partly that there was almost a season four. In fact, the cast thought there was going to be a season four. And the ratings and things had gone down. But apparently the, the thing that really swung it as to not bring it back was that the early seasons were kind of like a more of a family like the family was watching or and i think it was something to do with the advertisers were happy whilst it was a fact you know family audience because it's the adults that are going to be spending right that um, was the preferred market at yeah, the time yeah, yeah. yeah but by season three their demographics were definitely more just kids and the advertisers were like well yeah you know, 
<laughs> and uh, it's not surprising, considering the direction of the show, yeah. which just kept getting sillier and sillier. It's no wonder kids loved it. It was very yeah. fantasy and fairy tale oriented. By the time it ended, it's no wonder kids were the main uh, people who watched. Whereas in the beginning, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe when you when you see those older episodes, season three, that it that that it actually started as a very serious space drama. And it I don't I can't think of another television series that had such a dramatic change of direction than Lost in Space. Um, we we um, I, I was definitely inspired by the sort of the, the middle sort of middle period where there, there was a monster of the week and often that seemed to involve a um, a man with stockings over his head we, we, were, so, we were so inspired that when we did uh, our Sutton Park we yeah. we off, I, me- I remember getting Harry to wear the the curvy bit of an Easter egg box and he, and put that over his face to give him a sort of domed face and then make him yeah. Borrowing a pair of my mum's tights and getting him to stick his head in it, and that was our ode to a lost in space monster. <gasps> oh, oh, really? Yeah, oh, it'll you turn do... up. It'll turn up. It'll t- oh, we do okay. have it, but uh, it's, it's obviously yeah. it's not um, even up to the lost in space standards. But, uh, yeah. By the way, the thing that was really scary about those guys with stockings over their heads was the noises they made. Do you remember? It was sort of like it was less groaning. It was really, it was really spooky. Uh, I, 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 we will go. I think we'll go through the cast in a minute. But I just wanted to say that sort of thematically, um, season one is a mixture of the spaceship sort of traveling and sometimes being stuck on a planet for a while and then traveling a bit. Whereas season two, they're stuck on the planet for the pretty much the whole time. Um, yeah, actually, they have an episode where they're zapped off for some reason. Yeah, actually, for most of season one, they're stuck on uh, oh. Prius, uh, which is the name that they give the planet. But the first half dozen or more episodes, they were out there in space and traveling around. And then they landed on Prius and pretty much the rest of the season, they were stuck there. And uh, that uh, then I think season two, they... Prius blew up. Prius was having some real problems and they had to lift off and Prius self-destructed and they uh, did a little bit in space not really very much. And no sooner stuff. yeah, no sooner than they had finished getting out of Prius they crash <laughs> crash landed on another planet and the entire second season was them stuck on a planet. Now season 3, I think they had kind of gotten like a lot of feedback from viewers who said, can we, can we do something more than just sit around on a planet? Season three, they actually did a lot in space yeah. and they were going round and round to different places. As a matter of fact, you know how Star Trek had transporters, yeah. and they had this huge ship up in the space, and the way they'd get down was to transport. Well, 
lost in space decided we we want to keep them up in space. So how do they get down? If they're going to go on a planet, how the hell do they get down there? So they came up all of a sudden, lo and behold, this whole time they had this little space shuttle that had been there the whole time, only we never saw it until season three. And so that's how in season three, they got their way down to different planets to have different adventures without actually landing the Jupiter 2. I'm very, I'm, I know it's the silliest of the seasons, but I'm very fond of season three because <laughs> it's quite varied and also very much a, a product of its time. Like they have space hippies because it was made in 68. Yes. And, and hippies were very yeah. popular. <laughs> and by the way, you haven't seen anything until you've seen actor Jonathan Harris who portrayed Dr. Smith so brilliantly. If you haven't seen anything until you've seen Jonathan Harris do a hippie. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, Jonathan Harris was also, after Lost in Space had finished, they gave him a guest spot on the second season of of Land of the Giants, which I think was sort of of made the year after. He plays a pipo in that one. Yeah, I gotta see that again. Oh, see now, I'm a I'm an Irwin Allen nut, Paul. Uh, I love all of these things he did in these few years. It started with Voyage Under the Sea, um, which was quite successful, and and actually, Irwin Allen sold Lost in Space on the basis of the fact that look, I've got the smash hit. It's it's airing right now on CBS. It's it, it's making them a lot of money. Why don't you you know take a chance on this new thing I've got about people in space? So, uh, and then for a, a, a while, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Lost in Space were being produced at the same time. Right. And then um, time travel. I think they had yes. three, three things going at once at one point. You're right. Uh, all of those Irwin Allen things, I I was right on board. I loved them all. We'll we'll get back to Lost in Space um, imminently, but uh, I was just going to say that uh, Voyage does go from very serious to pretty silly. I don't think it ever gets as silly as Lost in Space with carrot monsters, um, <laughs> but it gets pretty silly. Um, I mean, and Time Tunnel was pretty serious relatively, and Land of the Giants is relatively serious pretty serious yeah but then the episode i was watching today which i will talk about in a bit you know it does because the the robot and will and dr smith they are but it's definitely the show with the most comedy in it um just that just the way they interact is it's uh it's very funny at times. Um, yeah, as so uh, as I as I mentioned before, the the show underwent a dramatic change in style and what they were going for. Originally, it was it was serious sci-fi stuff. All right, yeah. and then as a response, in particular to the six the massive success of the batman tv series which was just campy as hell just silly and 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 massively popular they got the idea that how are we going to compete with this and in a fairly short period of time they just went right over to the camp uh on lost in space 
Now, like I said before, never, I don't think there's ever been a TV series that changed that fast from serious sci-fi to camp. I, I can't think of any other show that that did a change like that. We should go through the, the list of, of characters. Um, I mean, I mean the, the main characters. So we've got Dr. Uh, Professor John Robinson, and he's the father of, of the family. And then we've got Dr. Maureen Robinson, his, his wife. Uh, Guy Williams plays John Robinson, and June Lockhart plays Maureen Robinson. Um, so she, she's the mother of the family. Then we have the pilot of the Jupiter 2, Major Don West, played by Mark Goddard. Right, and he's not uh, part of the family. He's no. he's the pilot supplied by. Oh God, they had a name for the space okay. uh, thing. I can't remember oh. what they called it, but he was the pilot provided to the family. Sort of has a sort. Of, I don't know if they ever. I don't know if they ever go beyond. I'm sure there's a sort of vague romantic connection with. Judy Robinson, who's the oldest daughter. But oh, I don't not, think it was vague. I, yeah, it was it, it I, was. I wasn't sure. I, I wasn't sure. I couldn't remember. Yeah, especially the first season, they pushed it a little. Yeah. And then after that, it didn't really seem to matter. But that first season, yeah. they were really pushing uh, the idea that Don, uh, the pilot, who was not a member of the family, and here they are all by themselves. Yeah. And um, that something was going on with their eldest daughter Judy, and Don. And I remember Maureen and and Doctor Robinson going like, "Well, uh, nature's going to take us course." They're the only hope for that family. Beyond if they get stranded on that planet forever, they're the only two who aren't related to each other. Yeah, yeah other yeah. than Doctor Smith, and I don't think he's going to be impregnating anybody. But, no. <laughs> Oh, we will have a lot to say about Dr. Smith. Uh, Judy Robinson was played by Marta, uh, Marta Kristen. And then the youngest daughter was Penny Robinson, who's the sort of middle child. She's played by Angela Cartwright. Um, and she's about the age, she's supposed to be about 11 when the series starts. Whereas mm-hmm. I suppose Judy Robinson is. She grew play. up fast. Uh, yeah. uh, Penny did. I mean, the actress. It, she, it yeah. just ha- she just happened to be there, you know, when girls mature. Like, yeah. boom! Uh, I, I, she's like, oh my god, like a foot taller, and mm-hmm. uh, she's she changes a lot uh, during the series. Un- unlike Will, who pretty much seems to keep looking like uh, the little kid he started out as. Uh, Although you can see that he's, he's aging. He was supposed to be about nine at the start of the series. I'm not sure. Um, He was played by Billy Moomy. Yes. Yes. And, um, and we know that uh, Billy Moomy, along with Dr. Smith and the robot who we'll talk about more, uh, really became the, the center three characters of the show yeah so dr zachary smith played by by jonathan harris he he is the the, uh sort of flight surgeon in the first episode uh, right um, yeah the same space company that gave them the pilot donald west also had a doctor (laughs) zachary smith yeah and he he's a sort of enemy agent in the first episode and, and causes all the pop well partly right. the pop, pop. It, it, it turns out he's a spy they never name the nation 
that he's spying for, but you kind of like it just, you know, it you you just sort of feel like it's Russia. Who else would it be? But they never say it's Russia. They never say where who he's spying for. But it's uh, right off the bat, Doctor Smith is a spy. And you know those early episodes with Doctor Smith, he he's evil. <laughs> he's really evil, and um, he's not kidding around either. Yeah. Am I right in saying? And I'm sure. I think I am. Um, it's probably on my DVD set. But there there was a pilot episode, and and there were certain characters missing. And I think there was no Doctor Smith in the no. pilot. Yeah. No, there wasn't. Um, so this is kind of the same thing happened to Star Trek. They made a pilot. They spent all this money and they filmed and produced a pilot that never aired. It was reused later in a two-part episode of Star Trek called The Menagerie. But the same thing happened to Lost in Space. They spent uh, an unprecedented amount of money producing a pilot that had top-notch special effects and it never aired. I don't know why that happened, because it was good stuff. At any rate, what ended up happening is in that pilot episode, there's no Dr. Smith. And I don't think I don't think there's a robot either. And it's basically about this family that merrily goes along a space with little conflict. And I think what producers and the network thought was, well... Where's the conflict? What uh, this fa- this family gets along too well. S- something's got to, you know. There's got to be something where there's conflict, and that's when Doctor Smith was conceived as uh, the nemesis that would provide the conflict. But even then, he wasn't going to be around all that long in the first season. They they kind of were going to get rid of him. And uh, Jonathan Harris, uh, well, what happened is, okay, they had this unaired pilot, a, a, a lot of footage, right? So they really quite brilliantly, as they started doing episode one, episode two, they used the footage from the pilot. And in, a, in brilliant editing and, like, figuring it all out, they pieced together all that pilot footage. It never went to waste in episodes one, two, three, four, five, and six. And so that footage was eventually used, but they artfully had to like insert Dr. Smith and they had to insert the robot. And somehow it worked. I mean, they did a really good job in reconfiguring this whole thing. And they saved a lot of money by using almost everything from the pilot episode that was never aired in the first six episodes. And it's really quite, I mean, you look at those episodes and you, what you see is like a gigantic budget, which they had, they had a gigantic budget, nothing. It was the most expensive TV series going. Remember the chariot traveling around and then it goes on the ice and then it's in the water it's in the ocean and they're splashing around in the oh my god that was miniature uh work that was good enough to be in a movie it was so well done also the first time the jupiter 2 crashes is 
oh my god it's a miniature crash and it is done so well you would swear even today looking at it it holds up the spacewalking scene in episode two or three where john robinson is out there outside of the jupiter two and he's got a rope and he's he's frantically i forget what the hell he's trying to do but he's out there spacewalking those scenes where he's spacewalking and weightless my god it's amazing how well they did that anyways what i'm saying is they spent a lot of money and a lot of time making that pilot and those scenes wound up in the first six episodes or so and you just saw amazing, amazing things, amazing special effects, amazing miniature model work. It it was top notch. One of the fun things, and I can't remember if they do this on Voyage as well, or is at the end of the episode, the story finishes, and then there's a five minute to well, something like three or four minute scene, which is is the beginning of the next story, and then yeah. it ends on a cliffhanger. So you get a cliffhanger yeah. every week. Which, like, like, yeah, Erwin uh, uh, Allen apparently loved the cliffhanger. I mean, he loved it. And that's why the first two seasons have that pattern. Um, no sooner do they finish the story, uh, that last few minutes when they come back from commercial, they're, oh, all of a sudden, uh, something new's happening. And in in like a minute or two, it ends <laughs> With some ridiculous cliffhanger where something yeah. explodes or whatever yeah, happens. Yeah, there was, I, the one I watched today involved um, lots of explosions and then they go outside and then these rocks part and there's this strange red creature with a big bulbous <laughs> head and it's, squeezy, it's squeezing something and it kind of, and, and then Dr. Smith goes all sort of um, negative green and, and then oh. it's like, yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> next episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think um, in the third season they just had like clips from the next episode yeah they dropped that they dropped that they also had a brand new theme song yeah yeah we like i think we agreed that we like the second theme more than the first yeah uh it's by john williams who of course went on to superstardom doing the score for jaws uh, clubs the, uh, and counters. Yeah. The, uh, the early the early title sequence is all animation but the third season yeah like photos and um yeah um that animated stuff was like it's it's just was a style that was used a lot at that time a lot of shows had that animated stuff and then suddenly it seemed old and so they said oh yeah we got to jazz this up nobody's doing this animated stuff anymore <laughs> so so they jazzed up the theme and uh, gave it a new opening which i love i love it tons better i, I imagine I, I having only seen one episode. I'm not. I'm not 100 sure. But well, I mean, I've seen more. But recently, um, in the early seasons, I, I guess there's like a pre-title sequence. Now I don't know if that's is that a recap of that cliffhanger from the end of the previous episode. I I guess it probably is, and then it goes into the title sequence. Whereas uh, in the third season, it just starts because there hasn't been a cliffhanger from yeah. the previous episode, and then it goes into what well, I what I remember. It goes into a, like a countdown. Dun, 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 oh, two, one, and into the title. see. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they'd have this preamble at the beginning, and something exciting would happen, and all of a sudden there's a freeze frame, and then you'd get seven, five, six, four, blah, 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 and the theme, uh, which you know thrilled well, we, me. We were quite. I mean, I was a lot older 
than you would have been. Um, I don't know when it, I don't know when the first time it was shown in the UK, but in the late 80s, maybe into, probably into the early 90s, they went through showing all of the Owen Allen shows. Actually, I say that they mainly showed. Boston Space and Land of the Giants, because it was a while before. They did eventually show Boys Fop and Sea, but they didn't show them in, in chronology. They obviously went for Lost in Space first, because I think they probably thought it was the most. Uh, but this was like sort of Sunday morning, sort of, I don't know about, I can't even remember whether it was after lunch. But anyway, that's when I first saw it in the late 80s. So mm. I, was, I was sort of. Which is, uh, which is decades school. later yeah, yeah. than when I saw it. How did it strike you? I mean, when you were looking, did it seem. How did it seem to you? Like really old fashioned, or you loved well, it? Or I, I like I liked it because it was just cause I liked it because I liked the sixties anyway, and and I, I was I was a Doctor Who fan already, so we were quite I was quite sort of um, uh, I, I get I I think it's probably more of a one where not all of my Doctor Who friends would have watched it just because right. it was TV because yeah, actually, um, there's no comparison to the sci-fi that was in Doctor Who to the you know what became the monster of the week goofiness of lost in space you know they were two very different things they were they were probably aimed at similar audience family audience at times doctor who ended up probably being a little bit more childish than adult and then some then some they went through an era where it was probably more adult than than kids doctor who did and uh, so so in the same way as lost in space had had a, had a fluctuating audience although with lost in space it was more family 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 kids kids, kids. Whereas mm-hmm. doctor, who, doctor who's was a bit more complicated than that because it went on for 26 years the first time around so yeah, it yeah. Was different sorts of uh, eras um, but they also is quite well known for its sort of catchphrases mainly the robot and uh, the robot and, and you still hear that people say this this day danger danger will robinson um, <laughs> um and uh, uh, the, uh dr smith had various different insults for the robot lots of space very much remembered for these things uh, warning warning from the robot it does not compute from the robot and of course danger <clears throat> will robinson um and then dr smith was like you bubble-headed booby, you cackling sacophony, you tin-plated traitor, you blithering blatherskite and traitorous transistorized toad. <laughs> now, uh, famously, actor Jonathan Harris, who, who knew his character was boring at the beginning, and he really, this was a good paycheck for him, okay? And he said to himself, you mm-hmm. know, got to do something here that I'm I've, I've got such a loser character what what can I do to make sure my character stays around and completely without permission he didn't ask anybody he just started to improvise and that's when this the character of Dr. Smith caught fire and it was completely because Harris just started ad-libbing his lines and that's when he came up with the the bubble-headed booby and none of that was written for him he just came up with it and oh the pain the pain yes he, that he was, was doing that in the episode that I watched today <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, you know it made it was so successful that by the time people caught on to what he was doing the ratings were good and the response from the audience was good that all they could really do was like, okay, I, I know what you're doing. 
all right? But they couldn't stop it. <laughs> and Dr. Smith became the most pivotal character on the show, which was never, never, ever intended. It wasn't intended ever. As a matter of fact, both the uh, the parent roles by uh, Lockhart and what's-his-face, they resented this terribly because they thought they were the stars, right? They do have head billing, you know, but that didn't end up mattering. The breakout star was Jonathan Harris. The breakout star was the robot. Apparently Guy Williams retired after he lost in space. <laughs> well, yeah. He, he, he did not have a good time on that show, mostly because he felt overshadowed. Well, he thought he was climbing on board a serious science fiction show, and it ended up being so silly. June Lockhart and, and, and he just were banned several times. They were just basically said, don't come to the next two shows we're doing. Because they couldn't stop laughing at the <laughs> stupid script. It was so silly to them, they couldn't keep a straight face in the in the films. And to punch them, they said, you're, we're writing you out of the next two episodes, and you're not going to get paid. That's how they punished them. <laughs> uh, time is rapidly passing, but I, I wanted to, well, I, I, I wanted to, to mention very briefly an episode that is a favourite of mine, but then there's an episode that I know is a favourite of yours, which is the one that I watched again today. So, very quickly, the the, the one that sticks in my head, and it's, it, it isn't. It's not to say that there isn't lots of you know. Um, the season one is 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 wonderful, and the black black and white is is so good in it. But there's an episode from season three called Space Creature, where Will wishes that he was by himself. And yes, it's yes. one of the episodes that they're fl- when they're when they're in space, as they're, they're flying, and one by one people vanish. And I was intending to rewatch that one as well, but I, I didn't have the time. But that, that's one that's stuck in, stuck in my head. And then there, there, there's, uh, they sort of reappear, and they're, they're in this nebulous kind of fog. And it's very Twilight zone really. Yeah. That, uh, that, with, yeah. with the unusual, uh, like, Will just, everyone disappears, and he's suddenly alone on the Jupiter, too. There's nobody else around, and he can't figure out where, where the hell did everybody go? Is he... Is he going insane or whatever? And it's very Twilight zone The one that we're, we're going to talk in a little bit more depth about is a favourite of yours, uh, which I I, uh, I rewatched today, called Trip Through the Robot. And now yeah. this is like season two, but it's like yes. the twenty sixth of thirty episodes. Yeah, so it's really, really, the really end. near really near the end of yeah. the season. And I read up today, and, and and it was saying that it was a kind of script that they kept for sort of spare um, and when they decided to make it it used lots of leftover props and things but as we were saying before we started recording it you wouldn't know that from from watching it because um, it, it's in basic basically they aren't shrunk down but but the robot is uh, gets bigger and they have to go inside to repair it and right um, yeah they go the, the robot grows huge and of course they want to fix it they want to get the robot back to normal so will who's uh, accompanied by our wonderful <laughs> dr smith they undo a panel under his treads to enter the robot and fix him which of course he does not have permission to do from his father and he's he's been warned to stay away from this area 
at any rate, he gets in there and we have this wonderful scenery of them walking through the robot. And uh, like the human body has antibodies to fight germs, the robot has this wandering weapon that's supposed to shoot and destroy anything that intrudes the inside. And they have to keep evading that, um, and they keep making their way closer and closer to the robot's so-called heart or center. And that's where Will gets out his toolbox, and we have this great set of this mechanical heart. And anyways, it's it's brilliant. And, and then Will is successful, and he gets the robot corrected, and it starts to shrink. Except they're still inside. And the robot keeps shrinking and Will and Dr. Smith have to get the hell out of there. But meanwhile, his father and Don have entered the robot as well, searching for him. All of them are trapped in a robot that's shrinking. It's brilliant. There's also some very funny bits um, uh, early on that had me chuckling because uh, it starts off that the, ro- there's, at the start of the episode, there's been a big explosion and the, the ship's been a little bit damaged and, and uh, the robot needs to be charging but they can't miss doing it so the robot sort of takes himself off into the desert of the planet to sort of and he's Sacrifice. sort of wandering through he's giving yeah he's sort of quoting bits of, of shakespeare and uh, yeah. uh then he and, and he uh, he also leaves a message somehow some, he must have come he must have knit back to record a message because yeah. penny kind of says oh look he left a message for us and the robot's mm-hmm. kind of going I'm, I'm, um, don't don't miss me and that sort of thing it's, yeah uh, it's very very campy in a, in a funny way yeah uh, along with the show changing its timber from really serious to what became campy the robot character started out as very sinister and very black and white. It was a villain. And as the show progressed, somehow everyone realized that I don't know how it happened. I think it happened as an offshoot of of Dr. Smith ad-libbing. And there just started to be this humorous exchange between the robot and Dr. Smith. But, I mean, you watch the robot at the beginning of the series, it, it, it's nothing at all like what the robot became. And whether you love it or not, that trio of Dr. Smith, the robot, and Will became the, the pivotal characters in this series. And the humor and, uh, and the genuine affection that Will Robinson had for the robot and the robot had for... Will. Yeah, it really chimed with me because uh, in my other job as as uh, head of the Shy Life podcast, we have a character called Cuthbert, which is played by a an internet site where which has a robot voice. But I found that the good thing about having Cuthbert in the show is that he sounds like a robot and he's unemotional. But if you write him saying emotional things, or you, I, I often have him saying. You know, I love you, everyone. Goodbye, whatever. And, and and I don't know if it works for everybody else, but it works for me. It's even though he doesn't have much emotion, if he says emotional things, and it's and and I was when I was watching today, I was thinking, uh, I I wonder if if I was in, probably inspired a bit by the robot from Lost in Space without even realizing it, because ah. um, they do go. a very similar thing, and and I would have you know, uh, he's a character that I've known 
for, mm-hmm. for over 30 years when I first saw Lost in Space. So. Yeah. Um, so but, a lot yeah. of a lot of people remembering Lost in Space, there's there's a a definite division between the the camps of appreciators. A lot of a, a lot of them just prefer the straight sci-fi black and white episodes from the first 10 episodes and a lot of people can't help not love the goofiness of how it ended up especially with season three and i know this is one of your favorites paul dr smith turns into a carrot (laughs) (laughs) you can't get any campier than that episode uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one of the first shows I got on DVD. It's not one I I play every you know loads and loads, and I'm sure there's some episodes I haven't even rewatched again yet. But uh, I knew I needed it in my collection because yeah, uh, it's uh, a, a, a definitely a fondness for it. Uh, mm-hmm. so. I I have too, and and I I think I you know I really love the earnestness of the first season. I love the money they put into the special effects and the models because it's as good as any movie you're ever going to see. The stuff in that first season, the special effects, but I, I also really love how dopey it became. So I don't know. I love the whole damn thing. Yeah, well, we could talk about Lost in Space all day, and there's been movies. There's currently, I think, I think it's still running a, a reboot that's run for a number of seasons, but we haven't got well, time for that yeah. really today. But I've enjoyed the the reboot on Netflix, and there's been two seasons. They say there's going to be a third, but I, I haven't heard a word about it yet. But I hope they do it, and they've also promised the third season is going to be the last season. Yeah, if we, wait, if we wait a year or two, then uh, we can. We, we can. I think to be fair, I, I, I have talked about some episodes of Neighbours from only about two years ago, so uh, I'm sure we can talk about the, the new series one one day. Um, yeah. Anyway, Toby, thank you very much for talking uh, with me about Lost in Space, and uh, I enjoyed it. You know, for a, a, a series that only ran for some 83 episodes, we sure did have a lot to talk about. <laughs> so. Well, thanks, uh, Andrew and Lisa, for letting us talk again, and hopefully we'll be invited back again to talk about something else. Well, I um, hope so. If we didn't scare them off, <laughs> well, maybe we'll be back. Uh, well, we'll uh, we'll hand back to Andrew and Lisa, and uh, and we'll say goodbye for now. Bye bye. Bye. Many thanks to Paul and Toppy for that. Yes, thank you, boys. Toppy, of course, is on the Smellcast and Matinee Minutia. Mm-hmm. And Paul is on 
the Shy Life podcast. And Vision on Sound. And Vision on Sound. But now, here's you and me looking at... Sergeant Cork. Happy Christmas, Lisa. Happy Christmas, Andrew. Now, let's go back to 1963. Okay. Christmas 1963. Yeah. Now, I guess for most sort of Doctor Who fans, Mm -hmm. you might think, well, 28th of December Mm -hmm. is a Saturday between Christmas and New Year. Yes. Episode two of the first Dalek serial. So you Mm -hmm. get to see the Daleks for the first time. You do. That's quite exciting, isn't Mm. it? But I think sometimes Doctor Who fans don't see the wood for the trees, Mm -hmm. do they? So let's just look at what was on BBC One after that. Mm -hmm. The Telegoons, the choking horror. Yeah. Okay. We've appeared on the Telegoons. Not on the Telegoons. We haven't appeared on the Telegoons. I'm not a puppet. No, you're not. No, but we've appeared on the Goon Show podcast. Yes. Uh, News and Weatherman, Jukebox Jury, which we'll skip over. Dixon of Doc Green, Mrs. Conroy's Goldmine, mm-hmm. written by David Ellis. Mm-hmm. A series created by Ted Willis, yes. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wells Fargo, mm-hmm. New Orleans Trackdown. Never yeah. seen Wells Fargo, no. it's some cowboy thing. Yes. Saturday film, Lost Treasure of the Amazon. Uh-huh. Comedy Playhouse The Bed by Ronald Wolfe and Ronald Chesney with Thor Heard and Freddie Frinton. Yes. New sport. Mm-hmm. I think that means news and sport. Yeah. But, and the final edition of That Was the Week That Was, or mm-hmm. as it's listed, That Was the Year That Was. Okay. Brackets, it is regretted that no ticket applications can be considered for this show. Mm. That's because we're not making it in 1964. Okay. Um, none of that's particularly Christmassy, is no. it? Not really. No. no. I mean, this is the point where you, I don't think you have quite as many specialised Christmassy programmes as you do now. No, and really the, the case in point mm-hmm. is Sergeant Cork that night. Yes. So uh, it's the start of the... Start of season two. Season two, yeah. Or wherever you refer to yeah. Sergeant Cork. Although seasons are a bit sort of vague ne- with nebulous. Sergeant Cork. Yes. Sergeant Cork. Sergeant Cork. Sergeant Cork, aren't they? Yes. Uh, the case of the Fenian men. Now mm-hmm. I've got the case number here because okay. Sergeant Cook's always got a case number, yes. and it's case number, sorry, file number four five one eight. Yeah. Now there's this joke that like Z cars at Christmas does special Christmas crimes with holly in their helmets and mm-hmm. things like that, as Old Man Steptoe says. Yeah. Sergeant Cork presents what is one of the most unchristmassy mm-hmm. episodes of anything I've ever seen scheduled. At yes. this point in December. Yes, I would. I do wonder whether whoever decided to start the second series at this point actually viewed this episode. Yeah. Because it's most unsuitable. It really is. And as it's split into three parts because yeah. of the advert breaks. Mm-hmm. And each 
cliffhanger, as mm. it were, gets, gets worse gets than worse. the one before. Yeah. Yeah. But what's what's it say for TV Times? Right. So yeah. Sergeant Cork is on on uh, that listing at ten past ten seven. Ten past seven, but bearing in may mind may vary according to yeah, region. Different regions would have had it at different times. Yeah. So so what's what's the blurb there? Um, it says. Yeah, so it says Sergeant seven ten Sergeant Cork, John Barry and William Galt in the case of the Fenian men by Bill Craig. Yeah, what's the blurb at the bottom there? Okay, so it says Cork investigating an abortive Fenian Fenian bomb outrage at the House of Commons is told told by an informer that another treacherous attempt is planned. This time it's to be something very special. Well, the fuller blurb on the network release says Sergeant Cork is assigned to a case involving the Fenian League, the American organisation dedicated to the overthrow of English rule in Ireland. After one abortive attempt to bomb the House of Commons, information is received that another assassination attempt is in the offing, and this time it's something very special. Written by Bill Craig, directed by Josephine Douglas, whose mm-hmm. name I don't recognise. I do recognise it. Yeah, do I've you? seen her on other yeah. things. Couldn't tell exactly what without looking it up, but I have seen her. But one. a lady. Yeah. A lady directing... Yeah. Well, basically it's a massacre, isn't it's it, really? It really massacres. is. Yeah. It really is. We, we put the disc in, and it mm-hmm. comes up with, with a picture of um, sort of Corky and and William Gaunt. And I said they do look a little Laurel and Hardy, yeah. don't they? Yeah. Or we should say John Barry and William oh, right, Gaunt. John, John John Barry and William Gaunt. Yeah. But I could just imagine William Gaunt as sort of Stan Laurel, putting mm. his finger in his gob, blowing mm. and making his hat go up and down, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which would be funnier than anything that happens in this. Yes, that wouldn't be hard though. No. Uh, but we start off in a sort of funeral directors, don't yes. we? Where, where there's a coffin being ominous, isn't it? Is, is it shot as an is ominous coffin? Ominous? Maybe. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, CID are being moved, aren't yes. they? So Sergeant Cork's getting a new, yeah, they're, they're, I, I have to say, office, not orifice. Yes, yeah. yes they're, they're preparing the first floor and all the CID chaps are going to be in together mm. so. and superintendent rodway is coming isn't yes. he although he's not he's, he's not, not actually in, in this, this episode, episode. No, no. uh but this funeral director's opening is is very it's very sort of avengersy isn't it, it yeah it's quite avengersy. and indeed yeah. there, there is an episode of the avengers on that night isn't there yes um le- later on because yes. sergeant cork obviously is is grim as hell this mm-hmm. this week so the rest of the schedule is the Larkins, yes. which I think has to do some heavy lifting to yes. cheer the mood of the nation. I think you're probably right. Now, we should say this is the old Larkins, not the new Larkins, isn't it? it so, well, it would be difficult for it to be the new Larkins. Yeah. Because I don't think yeah. many of the people that are in the new Larkins But it's nothing born. to do with Darling Buds of May. No, no. no it's, it's the Larkins with um, Piggy Mountain, David Kossoff. Yeah. And the Avengers is... Uh, Dressed to Kill, which I think is the one on the train. Yeah. Is that Annika Wills? Yes. Okay. Annika Wills and Leonard Rossiter and Richard Leach and John Junkin and various other people. Yeah. Everybody seems to be dressed up. Okay, fair enough. So. But yeah, Avengers are very good at like opening episodes in, in sort of places like funeral directors, aren't mm. they? There's a detective sergeant Tovey has turned up. Yes. Who's a friend of Corky. Yes. Although, although Corky doesn't like him being... Like him referring to him as Corky, doesn't Well, not he? when Marriott's around, because it yeah. might give him ideas. Yeah. But there's been a, a, a bomb attempt on the House of Commons. Mm-hmm. 
it's put down to Fenian activity. Yes. And there is some talk of um, should the military get involved? Mm -hmm. And basically the police aren't aren't really keen on that, are they? No. No. No, because they'll end up taking over. I mean, Mm. also you should bear in mind that a lot of um, police superintendents at this point were ex-military men. Were military men, men, yeah. I mean, we we, we talked about this previously in our last look at Sergeant Court, which was a long time ago now. It was. Yeah. Right, yeah, and there's a ship from New York on on its way with explosives, isn't there? Yes, yeah. also they believe. Yeah. Meanwhile, there's a lot of plotting in a pub, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. Oh, we should also say that because um, they they're having a meeting, aren't they? Corks mm. in a meeting with yeah. um, the superintendent and his inspector and, and Sergeant Tovey, yeah. and it gets interrupted by one of Sergeant Cork's informers. Uh, uh, he's, he's, I was going to say his lady friend, but yeah. she's not a lady friend in that respect, no, is she? But no. so she, she, says she, said she, she says she's got some information and she yeah. wants £25. Yes, so she can, they can emigrate to Australia. Yeah, because uh, basically her other half's involved. He is. And yeah. he, he's talking in his sleep and stuff, mm-hmm. isn't he? And, yeah. and tossing Yes. and turning. Yes. Do I do that? Sometimes. <laughs> That's right. I'm not involved in uh, no. in blowing things up. No. But uh, yeah, there's a load of plotting in a pub. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the end of part one cliffhanger, mm-hmm. and where I just wrote down goes a bit Oliver Twist. It does. Yeah. Why does it, it does. go Oliver Twist? Um, because the chap that's involved yeah. in the um, whole affair finds out that his his lady, his she's lady, called Biddy, isn't Biddy, she? Yep, has been to see Sergeant Cork. Yeah. And has therefore betrayed him, so he does a Bill Sykes. On and he's going to clonk her on the head with his yeah. with his weapon, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Then I wrote down Stilton. Why yeah. did I write down Stilton? Because it's about the only Christmassy thing, yes, isn't it, Stilton? Yes. Because um, Sergeant Cork, he was going to meet Sergeant Tovey mm. at a restaurant for a meal, and he missed it because he got called out to the this murder. Yeah. So he says he invites him back to his lodgings because yeah. his landlady is a good cook. Yeah. And Sergeant Tovey says he'll bring some Stilton. But all this funeral stuff. Mm-hmm. So what? What's it? What, what? What's the funeral for? Or who's it the for? The funeral is for the son of Lord Liscara, mm-hmm. who's been killed on. He's, he's a soldier. He's been killed on active duty in yeah. Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. This this chap. He, he he's written, he's not sympathetic to the Irish cause is he he's definitely not sympathetic to the Irish cause no and he just wants them sort of you know know their place basically basically yeah yeah and William Gaunt is doing a lot of rolling of his eyes he is yes yeah all all this plotting in the pub it's going to get investigated by Tovey and half a dozen constables yes well they they find out because they they find the ship or the the captain of the ship that's bought this explosives supposedly in Mm. And they basically say to him, if anybody dies, you'll you could hang. So yeah. he tells them where to find where he you know, where he drops the case off at. Yeah. Which is the pub. And they've also found on Biddy's body a, a, a list a of list. names. A they? list of names and this thing from the funeral director with the schedule of what's going to happen. Mm. Yeah. Tovey wants to take firearms, so it's it's yeah. a, it's almost Dixon and Doc Green firearms were issued. Almost, isn't it? yeah. 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 But only he is allowed to take his, yes. his gun in the end. Because the um, superintendent doesn't want Bobby's armed. Yeah. But Cork and Marriott are late back, basically, because yes. of the trains. Because they've been to see Lord Liscara and they've missed the train. The next one's not for two hours. Yeah. So. But then there's this mysterious crate yes. in, in, the, in the cellar of the pub. 
and you, you i think at first you assume it's explosives yes. don't you yeah but then it's revealed in and it's a gatling gun isn't it it is and I like the way it's shot because mm-hmm. it's shot almost like it's like a science fiction gun, yeah. isn't it? You know, yeah. like a sort of laser gun or yeah, something like that. In sort of some ways, I mean, you know, you said you said it was first invented in eighteen sixty-one. We're yeah. not that much beyond that. Only yeah, about it's a new, it's years. a new thing. So it's a yeah. relatively new thing. Still. And and it's quite a horrific thing, isn't it? it the is. way it works. Yeah. 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 As unfortunately, uh, we soon find out yes. as, as the as the as the peelers. Yeah as they're called, raid the pub. Mm-hmm. And you don't actually see it. It's no. all very heavily it's, implied. But you see the start of it, because you see the chap with the gun start to turn the turn handle. Turn the crank handle. And you hear yeah. the rounds going off. And there's these two there's two rows of bottles. Yes, which will get smashed. Which, which, which go off one after the other. Yeah. Clearly somebody's had to lay like charges yeah. on the, for the set design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so end, end of part one is, is a murder. Yep. Yeah. End of part two is a massacre. Yeah, they've stepped it up a little bit. And I just wrote, Happy Christmas, everyone. <laughs> There's a feast of festive entertainment on ITV. <laughs> <laughs> Deary me. And I wrote, All that's left is the Stilton. Yes. Because they, um, they all get killed. Yeah. yeah. So it's six, six bobbies and, 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 the and the sergeant. Yeah, because basically they're sort of trapped in on a stairway, on a narrow stairway. Yeah, and they're, they're sort of coming in blinded by the light. Yeah. Well, I don't see that there's much light in there. But, no, uh, they're coming from the light into the dark. Oh, is it? They can't see. So right. you right, it takes you a few seconds for your eyes to adjust, doesn't it? Now, so, oh, there is one other bit of comedy. It's from Chalky, mm. who says, I tried to make coffee, but it come out wrong, so you've got tea. Yeah. <laughs> Chalky's the sort of helper at the he police is, he's station, the sort isn't he? Of, yeah. He makes tea. He and makes things. tea and cleans and the grumbles, and basically. grumbles a lot, yeah. yeah. But the list of names, they sort of work out is the attendees at the funeral, isn't it? Yes. Because there's going to be, what is it, 12 pallbearers? Yes. Because it's a lead-lined coffin or something. Yeah. Well, basically, if you're bringing a body back from India, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know quite know how they would have preserved bodies in the past but you would probably need a lead-lined coffin to mm. stop any um odors yeah shall we say uh meanwhile at the church that they're setting up aren't they because mm-hmm. there's this private chapel they're going to go yes. in we'd better explain yes, that yes it's the it's the it's the chapel on the estate isn't yeah. It? So, yeah basically all the plotters are there aren't they mm-hmm. and the gatling gun arrives yes, in the coffin in the coffin yeah and they're gonna set it up in the in the private bit yeah uh, so that, in the vault. In the vault. Yeah. So that when all the pallbearers come through, yeah. they're just going to basically get shredded, aren't yes, they? Yes, they're going to they're gonna shoot them down. Scary me. Yeah. I mean, because yeah, cause they, they get the um, undertaker's assistant, don't they? Because mm. they want to find out what's going on. And he, he insists that the funeral is not, is the next It's tomorrow, day, yeah. Which should give them a clue, really, as to what is happening. Mm. But then the vicar stumbles across it, doesn't he? Does. he? Yeah. yeah, and they do capture one of the one of the blokes, yes. the police. Um, and Cork enters with a white flag and Marriott. A hanky, yes, a hanky. Oh, is it a hanky? Yeah. Hanky on a stick. Is it on a stick? No, he's holding it. He's, he's, just, he's just waving yeah, it he's about. Just flapping it about. Waving his bogies at them. <laughs> Oh, that is quite clean, actually. Victorian <laughs> bogies. I don't know if they're worse <laughs> than like modern day ones. Um, but yeah, Cork has a sort of. He, he tries to sort of negotiate for peace, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah. And that's a real, like, sort of cork thing, isn't yes. it? That, yeah. You know, he, he's he's not... He doesn't want people to, to fight. He wants no. them to basically... But he's still quite angry mm. about what happened the previous night. Yeah, well, with reason, I think. Yeah. Because, yeah, you know, 
His mate, his mate bought it and he didn't get his Stilton. So, did he, do you think he took his Stilton home or I not? Don't know. He, he had it later. As they say, you know, so we either die here or we hang. So mm. you know, they've got nothing to lose. That, that's the thing. There's no, think, there's no easy way out for no, them. Is I there? think the the idea is that if they they die fighting, it's a more honourable death yeah. than being hung. But eventually the army is sent in because it's Sergeant Court. We can't afford an army, no. so we don't see it. No. But what we do hear is the sounds of battle. Yes. And Cork and Marriott just sort of observe, don't they, from mm-hmm. safety? Yeah. And yeah, they're not happy about it, are well, they? No, because, you know. Who would be? Who it, it would be? It's, yes. But it, 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 again, it's. You know, Dixon Dot Green is Ted Willis, Sergeant Cork is Ted Willis. Yeah. And we always say Ted Willis has always got a point of view. Yes. This isn't a Ted Willis episode. No, it's not. But it still adheres it, to, to, his, his to his sort of vision, vision of Cork, it. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. But, my word. Yes. <laughs> yeah, anybody sitting down, sort of, you know, the Saturday between yeah. Christmas and New Year, thinking, oh, I'm going to, oh, I'll, I'll watch the telly night tonight. It'll be, you know... Something nice and light-hearted on. Yeah. And they get a massacre. So basically, Doctor Who and his chums are dying of radiation. Yep. And Sergeant Cork has a massacre. Yeah. So it really is a cheery night, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so yeah, as, as Christmas things go, it's not the most Christmassy. It's not. No. 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 But it's, it's a very good episode. Would you have perhaps bumped it to a week later? I think I might have started the series a week later. Yeah. yeah so that it started in January rather than um, but, between but, Christmas yeah, and that, Year. But that's the way that schedules go. But I, I guess, as I say then, maybe, you know, now there seems to be more emphasis on things being Christmassy, but you still do get things that have murders in, maybe not massacre. Well, the only thing I'm thinking of is EastEnders. Yeah, EastEnders is never cheery. EastEnders is always grim as arseholes, isn't it? (laughs) You know, But Sergeant Cork is as well at this point. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Thankfully, there are some, there are some, there are some other cheery ones mm-hmm. uh, later on. Because I wasn't remember. I noticed on the back, you, you've got you've got Sergeant Cork and Marriott with their with oh, their holiday their hats seaside on. Seaside outfits on. Yeah. yeah. So that that's perhaps a bit a bit more fun. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there we go. It that, is. That, I mean, that's, that's Sergeant Cork at Christmas. It's a very good episode, and we. It's a very good series. If you've never seen Sergeant Cork. Try it because it's was it a, it's in the last network series. sale. It, it um, sometimes not is, the last sometimes one. Isn't. No, no, I don't think. No, no. we've still got a few to finish. Haven't we? we have. Yeah, we should we get. Have. We but should can, finish it. We've got it as separate volumes. You can buy it as a complete series now. So yeah, you'll have the whole of Sergeant Cork in, in one box. But yeah, it's it's really good. You, you know, everybody should watch Sergeant yeah. Cork. But yeah, there we go. So that's our final article of this episode mm-hmm. and our final article for this year. It's been yes. a been a tricky year for us it hasn't has it? been a tricky year we're hoping to get to get back to a yeah, more regular hope, hopefully schedule we, we can uh, we can get back on the on the production line a bit more next mm-hmm. year i'm not going to make any promises yet no uh, don't, don't hold your breath for an episode in january but we'll, <laughs> we'll see how it goes we, our cupboard's a little bare at the moment it is. isn't it when it, it comes is. to articles yeah. but yeah we'd like to wish you all a happy christmas yes uh don't get involved in any massacres if you no, can help try it not to yeah but you you can have some Stilton. Yeah. Do you that like Stilton? Is, no. No, I don't think I do. That actually. is that is quite Christmassy Stilton. I might have some. I might have some Dorset Blue Vinny. You yeah, know, that's not great. Well, I, I don't mind a blue vein at okay. Christmas. Do you? No, no. I I don't like it. <laughs>
make Warren giggle. <laughs> <laughs> right, so happy Christmas and we'll see you in 2022. Okay. That's right, isn't it? Yes. Yes, okay. Bye! Bye! That was episode 60 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Martin Holmes, Paul Chandler and Toppy Smelly. Thanks also to Ben Baker and Simon Coward. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Sergeant Cork, The Case of the Fenian Men was by Bill Craig. And the producer was Jack Williams. Soldiers, 